0: Hey guys, once again, uh, after our chit-chat pre-camera here, really appreciate you guys being here. And, and I have to say, there's probably not a week that goes by when I get to the end of the week and I think, I just do not have time to do this. Why did I ever decide to do a research review every single week where I dig in, do my best to understand a study in context, prepare notes and then try again to do my best to make sure I put it in the right context of the rest of the research. And yet when I do finish it, I think that's the best thing I did all week. Like that is that is absolutely the best thing. This is what I should be doing all the time. So I appreciate the the accountability of, of you guys being here and, and knowing that you're going to be looking at some of this information because it definitely makes me take it more seriously and you find just some insane stuff when you start looking at how much research is actually done. So, as just a little bit of a of a little note of the uh, process of research, you know, keep in mind that we're going through typically one study or one meta analysis per week, and there are a lot of things that we can't cover. So, I can't always put it in the, a, a you know holistic. Uh, context. But today, I, I actually looked at two studies that, that talked about hormones. And I think I may do kind of a part two B, or at least I'll, I'll reference that the one that I'm not getting to today later, because I think it's equally important. They did more functional MRI studies of what's happening in the brain. But last week, we talked about the, the, the role of glucose and the fact that with some Biometric feedback training, how if we were the subject groups who were trained to really assess certain physical cues, the hunger cues, am I just having a craving kind of mentally, psychologically, or, or kind of really assess what's happening in my bloodstream through blood sugar, if we could start using metrics to think, okay, my blood sugar is probably about 120, probably about 90, probably about this you know, those are the people who could really control hunger, lose weight more effectively and keep it off. Well, this week, we're going to talk about different hormones that are present that control hunger and satiety. And kind of similarly, uh, look at look at how it's going to end up at least I'm going to take you to a place where we try and assess it in in a very similar way. But let's let's get into the the actual study. This is a very current one done just uh, in 2020, and uh, th- they didn't really look at anything novel. They they weren't trying to break new ground, but there are a couple different theories when it comes down to hunger and what causes hunger. So last week, looking at blood sugar management was one theory. Now they wanted to just kind of assess, is there really a link between things like leptin and ghrelin and uh, different different hormones, insulin and glucagon. They actually left insulin out of this one, which is why I said I may want to do a, a part 2 B uh, because there is some relevance there. but let's let's look at their premise and I'll, I'll start by by just reading what was what was in the abstract, and then I'll, I'll expand it a little bit. Weight loss maintenance is challenging and you succeed in the long term. This study aimed to explain how appetite related hormones, adaptive thermogenesis, Perceived hunger and stress influence weight loss maintenance. So those th- that last line, perceived hunger and stress, they actually did a bit of a qualitative part to this research. They did some interviews uh, as well as a lot of blood draws to to test certain levels of certain hormones in the context of dieting. Uh, what was what was interesting about that? I've I, I mentioned that that Kevin and I are involved in a study right now with with our matter of fact, some of you guys in the diaduct may have received information on this. Uh, don't tell us, nobody. I'm not supposed to know of anybody who's doing this, but um, you know, very similarly, we're looking at actual results. So what we can dogmatically say happened, but then with a qualitative survey analysis, we know how, how did you relate that to your progress, what was going on in your life and that sort of thing. So it, it's an interesting way to, to look at two sides of research, qualitatively and quantitatively. But this is a little bit of an extended version. I want to key in on a couple lines here as well. Any behavior is strongly influenced by environmental determinants, such as our you know blood sugars we talked about last week, and disconnect between expected actions of, this is glucagon-like um, peptide one. And and there there are some. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna make you guys learn kind of all of these things in, in what they do, but but there are a handful that I will. But these particular peptides and hormones uh, are objectively happening in our bloodstream, but we can have a subjective measure of appetite and energy intake, similar to last week's study. And it suggests that humans may be more responsive to external stimuli than to the internal biological cue. So again. Almost an exact repeat of the study model we went over last week, a recent systematic review of theoretical explanations identified five main themes as important for behavior change maintenance. And this is, this is one of the things I think that this study almost takes a, a, a turn, like there's a fork in the road. They're going to, as I'm going to show you, measure very quantitative hormone levels in your bloodstream. But then they're also looking at things like these five psychological things that we know seem to always be tied to our ability to lose body fat, change body composition and maintain it. So so check these out. Uh, One is motivation, including the enjoyment and the identity. Do I really like what I'm doing? Am I enjoying this process of of losing body fat or changing my body composition, engaging in some kind of self-care in a physical sense? self-regulation which is um, you know very much tied to emotional intelligence the ability to emotion to emotionally regulate so our, our skills for coping and so forth habit uh, you know can we actually do the things that are required and then keep those in our in our daily behaviors cognitive resources so this could you know kind of tie back to emotional intelligence a little bit but also just the intellectual capacity to do these things you know some people may have a better or a worse time trying to learn what they need to learn for an endeavor like this Uh, and then the environmental and social influences including support so you know these are not unfamiliar terms or concepts you guys we talk about them a lot Uh, but at the same time remember they're they're going to try and look at those things what's happening psychologically socially environmentally and what's happening in our actual body and and see how many parallels and comparisons we can draw. Mm -hmm. So most studies have been directed at either the, the physiological or the psychological determinants. The present study was designed to integrate the contribution of these components and investigate the role in regain after weight loss. So here's, here's how they did this. They, they, I think they ended up, they had like 20 some subjects. And by the time they go through their selective criteria and people who may drop out after a while, 15 women finished this study, which was actually a two year long study. The average age was 46. The average BMI was 39, which is the very top end of obese. If you get over 40 on a BMI index, you're considered morbidly obese. So if, if I just looked at the average height of a woman being, let's say 5'2 to 5'3, um, sorry if you're taller than that, but I think that's around the average for females. If you get up to around a 40 BMI, you're probably looking at about 100 pounds overweight, very close. You're probably 220 to 230 and per what a BMI chart would say you should be, you know, that's, that's, what, that's the average female here. Their resting metabolic rate. I'm going to point out some things that aren't necessarily part of the study, but I think they're very incidentally interesting. So t- they're tested with, with you know, laboratory equipment, metabolic carts, uh, things like that. Their resting metabolic rate on average was almost 1800 calories. So we have talked about what the average metabolic rates are for human beings, the average basal metabolic rate or resting metabolic rate for women is around 1,350. But if you're almost a hundred pounds overweight, then absolutely. It takes a few extra hundred calories, your muscular system, your heart and your lungs to, to handle that stress, that physical stress. Uh, But then there was also a differentiation from that average. It skewed up 350 calories higher or lower. So some women were truly at that just about average of 1350 and some were even over 2000 just because of their normal genetics plus that that extra physical stress. So um, here's another interesting thing. They they in phase one. To actually lose enough body fat, they they just predetermined that we're going to put these women on about 850 calories, uh, pretty pretty normal, I think, calorie distribution or macronutrient distribution. Uh, low fat, only 13 percent of calories in fat, Decent carbs. This would kind of be a typical dietetics program. Matter of fact, it was managed by a dietitian who who you know created the, the planning, um, and then it, you know so it took about three to five months. to to lose, I'll I'll show you what the results were on the next slide. Then they went into a one or two month, whatever it took for people to incrementally increase their food intake back up to maintenance. So as soon as they reached a level that they were maintaining their weight, that was another very controlled part of the study. And then they went for 18 months to conclude the two year intervention, uh, not just saying, hey, good luck, we'll check in with you once in a while, or at the end of 18 months, you know, we're, we're going to see what happened, but they, they maintained with support. They, they wanted to stay in contact. They wanted to know that they could use optional meal replacements. You know, you could go to this, this clinic study and say, hey, I like that protein shake or this food, you know, that you were giving me these meals. I, I'm going to use that. Uh, they even had relapse management strategies. They could have weekly check-ins, uh, you know, all kinds of, they, they just basically had support, anything that they would need. And so to me, that seems like a pretty good plan. If, if, you, if you have a coach, you know, if you're a client of, of ours or you're out there in the world and you are a client or a coach, uh, obviously, that's, that's what we like in the industry. We like massive support. And, and these subjects had it. So they, um, let me get to the results here and then I'm going to come back up here. So the results, they lost an average of 30 pounds, which was about 13 and percent of their body weights. And again, this was in an average of four months. Um, I, I don't know. I don't think there was any particular criteria. I, I don't there, there There may have been like when they reach a certain level because they said each person took three to five months. So not exactly sure. They didn't say what that criteria was. Um, but here, here's a couple little interesting side points again. Uh, 25 pounds of that was actual body fat out of the 30. Uh, one of the things I'm going to show you later is that of those five pounds that were not strictly fat mass, less than a pound was lean body mass. So the other four pounds, things like glycogen and water, anything that's not fat mass. So with a pretty low calorie range, 825 to 850 calories, These are 46-year-old women. They were not powerlifters, bodybuilders. They're not in the gym. Exercise was not a a variable in this study whatsoever. And on an aggressively low-calorie diet and losing 13.5% of their total body weight, less than a pound of it was lean body mass that's a good piece of information. People, those of us who hear all the time, Oh, you can't eat this low. Don't go below this. Or you can't let your protein do this. Or you got to do this. You're going to lose muscle, 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 muscle. Study after study, after study, after study, I presented to you guys in the FDI shows it's just not true. It's just not true. Your body selects the kind of tissue that's expendable and what's not your body does not like to lose lean body mass. It's just a very protected uh, resource in your body. So, uh that's just again a nice little side note but um one thing that did happen and you may be able to connect this to a study we did last year or review we did last year the resting metabolic rate did reduce from the start of the study to peak fat loss almost 300 calories with a plus or minus of 225 so some people's metabolic rates had dropped even low you know almost 500 or, or more than 500 calories but as you'll remember I hope from from a previous research review, that rebounds pretty quickly as it did here. I'll, I'll show at the end of, of this of these notes that it, it did kind of rebound back up but at that peak spot what you can expect in a calorie deficit in a dieting process is your metabolic rate is going to drop. That's, that's normal. It's part of your body just being leaner and healthier. It's part of just metabolic adaptation. And even though, as I mentioned, we're not necessarily losing a lot of lean body mass, you are going to see shifts in that, that adapted metabolic response. And hence, some of the interest in things like diet breaks and that sort of thing. So let me, let me bounce back up now to the slide I skipped. One of the things that they were looking at as they were doing all these tests through MRIs and blood draws and things like that, uh, the hormones, leptin, ghrelin, glucagon-like peptide 1, peptide YY, growth differentiation factor 15, these are all different uh, hormones and peptides that have some regulation of hunger. So if you remember the hypothalamus in our brain, part of our, you know, just right at the top of our brain stem, controls hunger. And there are different things that cue us for appetite and things that don't. Um, I think it was last week we talked about how phase three gastric contractions, when your stomach's almost all the way empty, you you know how, uh, you know, when you throw up, which I hate to gross anybody out. I know Andrew would just eat lunch, but like how your stomach just contracts and like you can't control it and you're just like projectile vomiting. That's your cardiac sphincter at the top. You know, your stomach is contracting so hard that stuff's flying out, you know, that end at the end of terminal digestion, that same kind of very harsh contraction is happening, but your pyloric sphincter between your stomach and your, your duodenum or or your, your small intestine, that's what's opening up to make sure that the full stomach contents are emptied into your small intestine when, when everything is sufficiently digested. So digestion And absorption is happening kind of slowly over time, you know, as as you're eating your meal and it's digesting. But then when it's time to kind of wrap it up, that's when your stomach does that. And and that's that that mechanoreceptor perception is is kind of that first wave of hunger. That's when you get this mechanoreceptor reflex of, wow, the stomach's empty. There's a hunger pang. And it's a sensation. It's not hypoglycemia. It's your blood sugar, certainly not low. It's actually high because you've been digesting all this food but it's a sensation. And last week's study, we talked about how a lot of people take that as, Oh my gosh, I feel empty. Let me run back to the pantry. Well, your body needs anything but food at that point, like your blood sugar levels, your blood amino acid and lipid levels are as high as they're going to be because you're, you just digested that meal. But that, but that sensation often cues us to want food today. We're going to learn a little bit about why, because it's related to one of these hormones, um, but if you understand what that mechanism is, you can cognitively say, well, yeah, that's that's just my stomach emptying out. I'm cool. I'm good. I'm not hungry. That's just a physical sensation. It's not real, quote, hunger. So uh, some of you guys, I know some of you nerdy types understand and you've heard about leptin and ghrelin and things like that are. For those of you who don't, leptin is a hormone inside of fat cells that will rise or fall based on the volume of body fat in the cell. If, if, if body fat is being stored or released, those levels of leptin are changing to tell our body to be hungry or not. Uh, the other ones all are inside the, the, the GI system, different parts of the GI system, You know, particularly ghrelin and glucagon, glucagon-like peptide one, GLP. Uh, That's in the upper part of the GI. The the peptide YY and growth differentiation factors are more in the distal parts of the the small intestine and large intestine. And they they did kind of this broad scope, which I think is good for a study to see you know what's we're gonna we're gonna throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. We're gonna see where we can find correlations. Uh, The 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 further away from your stomach you get, those just don't have any correlation whatsoever. So the kind of chemoreceptors and, you know, baroreceptors, mechanoreceptors in the end of your GI system, large intestine and so forth, you know, kind of, I'll put it bluntly, you know, whether you have a lot of waste down there or not, the volume of food in the terminal parts of GI system just really don't matter. That doesn't have a factor that correlates with hunger and appetite, but certainly up in the upper GI, it does. So, um, as I said, you we, we just didn't see any changes in the, in the the lower GI, but the upper GI we did. Uh, one thing that I did not mention here, adaptive thermogenesis, one thing that they wanted to look at, it's very, very tied to just metabolism and the fact that resting metabolic rate did come down acutely. And then when people came back up to maintenance levels, it, it responded appropriately. Adaptive thermogenesis is, is kind of the mechanism of, of metabolism measurement. So, uh, is, is just the rate of heat loss with digestion and energy in general, it, you know, almost, almost as, a, as a correlate, you know, if, if I'm walking around and doing something, am I burning the same amount of calories as I'm digesting food? Am I burning the same amount of calories? You know, what's really happening to that cellular metabolic rate in a state of calorie deficit and maximum fat loss as they studied it or kind of back up to maintenance and, and again, you know, adaptive thermogenesis went down just like RMR, resting metabolic rates, but then it came back up. Mm-hmm. So they could say, well, that's just not really a factor in weight gain. So tie that to this slide. These subjects, these 15 women, after they had successfully lost an average of 30 pounds and they had successfully incrementally moved back up to maintenance levels of food, then they had 18 months with full support, food replacements, anything they wanted, dietitians on staff. We gotcha. There's no way you could fail. They still regained 13 and a half pounds, which I don't think is horrible. You know, I mean, somebody in two years regaining 40 to 45 percent back, that's a pretty good pretty good measurement of success compared to people who don't have support because we know that, uh, that that percentage would have been a lot higher. You, you would have had a whole lot more people regain all of their weight back. Um, so I, I do wanna make the note, even though it wasn't part of the study, that, that I think that support is important. You know, Having somebody perhaps to talk to, having some kind of external accountability, uh, just, just kind of being tied to it mentally, that, that you're part of this study, yeah, I, that, that paid, paid off. But still, you have to ask with all of that, why regain anything? And, and this was part of what they wanted to study because these researchers knew that would happen at some level. I mean, if everybody had just maintained their weight loss, nobody regained anything, they would have had a study because, I mean, these researchers would have said, wow, like now we need to look at why that happened. Like like what in the world did we do methodologically that made this so successful? But you know they went into this knowing that people would probably regain some weight and they wanted to see how it correlated to these different hormones so i gotta say th- there wasn't a lot of correlation anywhere which in and of itself is huge news for us to discuss but the glucagon like peptide one did have a strong correlation small but consistent and strong And, and so one of the things that, that glucagon like peptide one does is is it, it, it controls hunger in that, in that postprandial phase. So when those phase three contractions have kind of emptied your stomach, as I said, and you get that first hunger pang that is triggered or the, the hormonal mechanism of that is largely due to GLP one. And so what they found is all of the different times you can feel hunger, all of the different times in ways you could overconsume food, the place that seems to be the biggest trigger for people is right after that stomach emptying. So let's, let's, let's think back to, to what I said a few minutes ago your blood sugar levels, as we talked about last week, at that moment are probably as high as they're going to be. You shouldn't have feelings of hypoglycemia or just you know, actual acute biological hunger, but when your stomach empties and you feel that, that trigger by the GLP-1 that you are empty, that, that does tend to correlate most where, where people act, where people actually then make that next move. So, so think about your daily behavior. Uh, And I'm going to, I'm going to use myself as an example. I always kind of tell on myself, but yesterday I was having a great day of nutrition. I had decided that in my pursuit of losing 10 pounds this year, my go-to method right now is going to be three meals and one snack a day. That's my meal planning. That's what I'm going to try and stick to. And yesterday for breakfast, I had a little more than half a cup of oatmeal, half a banana, scoop of protein powder, quarter of a cup of blueberries, a little bit of flaxseed oil. Really, really nice breakfast. Waited about four hours. I had about a cup of rice, some broccoli, maybe four or five ounces of of ground turkey. Just felt great. Uh, You know, nice, big, big lunch. Then I went and I did a really hard cardio and my snack was just a scoop of protein powder. No, no fruit, no yogurt, no anything else. A scoop of protein powder. So then I went home, and uh, we had taco salad. And so it was just lettuce and you know olives, tomatoes, that kind of thing. A uh, little little ground beef. And I thought I'll I'll have you know a serving of tortilla chips with this. And I was pretty hungry because I hadn't eaten my my lunch. Because I wake up at four in the morning, is actually about ten in the morning. So then I train about one or two had, had that scoop of protein powder. Now it's about five. So I have not had anything for about five hours, six hours, except that scoop of protein powder. Plus I did the cardio. So I'm hungry. My body's empty. So that one serving of tortilla chips just kind of turned into two servings, which kind of turned into, I may as well just finish this bag, you know, don't want to have to put in just a few extra chips back in the pantry. So I'm guessing I had about 75 to 100 grams of carbs. Again, not a bad day. It was not a successful day of weight loss. But if I, if I was truly measuring my food, uh, you know, tracking every single gram, that meal probably tilted me from a really good weight loss day, calorie deficit day to just pure maintenance. Um, and why did I do it? My intent was one serving. I did it because of this. I I I did not yet let myself get to the point where I even felt full that that distance between feeling full then the digestive process taking place and then your stomach emptying I mean that's a depending on what you eat that's a that's a you know maybe 2 hour to 4 hour window for that whole process I failed even on the front end I didn't eat slow enough or give myself time to really psychologically decompressed to the point where I could even get in the doorway of that process. And I was already tapping out. But a lot of people on the other end of that process, you know, you've just eaten your meal. And all of a sudden, two hours later, it's like, oh, my gosh, I feel so hungry. I still have an hour two hours before my next meal. And as we talked about last week, if you just stop and consider cognitively the fact that wait a second, I'm I'm probably still okay. Maybe maybe that's just that signal that my my stomach is emptying out mechanically. You know, my blood sugar level is still okay. I don't feel weak or hypoglycemic. I'm just going to drink some water and ignore it. You know, in 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 a minute, that hunger will go away. Maybe ten seconds, and it won't even come back for another hour or longer. I mean, how many of us have experienced that where? if we just kind of ignore that first wave, it just doesn't even come back. Well, that's, that's what was happening here with weight regain. And here's what's really interesting, and I'll expand on this in the next couple of slides. Uh, even though they, the researchers could tie it to this one particular hormone, subjects with their qualitative uh, you, you know interviews they all said, I don't, I didn't even really feel hungry. I don't know why I gained that way back. I wasn't particularly hungry, uh, you know, during the maintenance phase, uh, which is really important. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to juxtapose this in just a second, but while they were incrementally increasing their food intake to maintenance and then maintaining they're like, I don't know, I guess I was just stressed out. I'm, I'm just a pig. I don't know. But, but, but as a, as a research subject, I cannot say, I was physically hungry. That hunger did not drive me to overeating. So that's important because this is, this is retrospective analysis that they're making. Um, and now look at this. So th- this is just anecdotal. This doesn't mean anything, but it is a pretty sweet little nugget of information. The subject who regained the most had the lowest ghrelin levels, both before they started and post intervention, that means that they physically as a subject should have felt the least hunger. So, so they gained the most back and they reported and felt the the least amount of hunger. And so again, one of the things I think is important about this study is that we don't typically gain weight because we're hungry. And, and that was one of their conclusions, even though they wanted to look at the psychological models, those, those five categories that I discussed, and then they also wanted to see, maybe it is one of these hormones or peptides. They had to come back and admit, we think it's mostly social and psychological. We don't think these hormones are truly driving people. Matter of fact, these people were successful on 825 to 850 calories a day they all lost thirteen and a half percent of their body weight when they were actually hungry. So one of the things that happen when these different different hormones and peptides are elevating or decreasing in your bloodstream, there is absolutely—I already talked about this—that um, may not be as interesting to you guys. So this this one I think is a little bit more. Uh, there is absolute increased hunger. When we are in that process, and yet we can still succeed because we, we use our brain to assess that hunger, where it's coming from. We have one eye on the objective data in context of where we're at, what our goals are, how we can really measure and quantify our hunger and then act appropriately. And, and so when you are in that first six months, as they were, you know, in these first six months of the study where they lost their weight and came back up to maintenance, all of the blood panels showed a significant reduction in leptin. So body fat cells are releasing less and less leptin because you, you want leptin to, uh, to be there to signal, oh, I'm full, you know, tell the hypothalamus to, to turn off that hunger cueing like we're full, we're good, we got, we got plenty down here. Well, you actually have a significant reduction in leptin through this process, which means you're hungry. You have a significant reduction released in your stomach of GLP. So now the other side of that coin is also to your disadvantage. Now you're decreasing satiety. Instead of feeling full after a meal, you're eating. You, you guys know what it's like when you're in calorie deficit. You're eating just enough. You never feel like gorged. You don't feel gigantically full. You're just like, okay. That took the edge off. I feel pretty good actually, but it's not gonna last long. You know, within an hour or two, you, you, your stomach's empty, you're feeling hungry. So you've got increased hunger being driven by leptin. You've got in, decreased satiety being driven by reductions in GLP, uh, you know, ghrelin as well is, is increasing hunger, no changes lower in the GI system. So everything is working against you and yet you still lost weight. As soon as everything flips and is working for you, why do we regain the weight? It's all in our behavior. It's certainly not of these hormones. The, the, the one thing that they could say, and this is something to look at further this glucagon like peptide prior to intervention, you know, this was the, uh, the R score. This is just the, the level that the metric they were looking at maybe, maybe nanograms per deciliter or something like that. And then at the point of maximum fat loss, it hadn't changed. So they thought, wow, that's interesting. But then once they got into maintenance and just because we had gone through this process, it seemed to drop a little bit. And and they didn't necessarily study it longer than that. I mean, again, this was a two-year intervention. So I think it was a long enough time. But this is a clue to the fact that every time we lose weight, and a lot of people have been talking about this in the last few years, there could be a cost. It could, it could be easier to regain weight back once we've lost it because evolutionarily, the body likes to store calories. The body likes to prepare for fasting. The body likes to prepare for famine. Uh, that's the last couple million years of our, of our history. And so our bodies have adapted for that. So when we go through a calorie deficit in a prolonged way, Our bodies as just, you know, a hundred trillion cells and organ systems aren't, aren't all in the know, quote unquote, to realize this is a good thing. We were trying to do this intentionally. They're just getting the biological cueing that we're, we're in this starvation state. We've been on a calorie deficit for three months, six months, a year. And so you're almost just setting up that, that glucagon like peptide, to, to, to not be quite as satisfied, not quite as sated after meals so that you just want to kind of eat more and eat more and eat more. Um, I don't know how many of you guys have dogs, but man, can you see this in dogs? My dog during the day, you know, you know, she just does what she does. She's not always scratching around for food, but once she eats something, like for 30 minutes she is doing nothing but scavenging for food. She's licking crumbs off the floor, she's begging for food, she wants to go outside and see if she can find food. It is an absolute frenzy that only happens after that feeding. So it's a it's a biological cue that once you're consuming food. I mean imagine imagine if we didn't have quite the cognition levels we have or the consciousness we have. And we're just biological organisms, like squirrels or deer or something out in the field, and you you come up you come across some food. Evolutionarily, your body is going to have an advantage if if mechanisms kick in that say, "Wow, there's food! Eat, 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 eat while you can." Well, that may be what this GLP is doing in prolonged fasting states. It kind of It it dampens that response to be sated after meals so that once we're eating, we want to ravenously keep eating. So that is one thing out of all of the stuff that they they looked at in the study. That was the single correlation they can say, if there is a hormone response that correlates to weight regain, this is the one we're hanging our hat on. And like any study, you know, they give their own limitations and say, well, here's what we didn't look at. And this is what we couldn't do in the study. And if anybody's going to do more research, you know, it could be here, here and here. So we can kind of round out our understanding. But for what we studied, this is what we could find, you know, that that acute mechanism of satiety after meals seems to get reduced chronically once you've been on a diet. So, So some things to learn, first of all, Uh, You know, yo-yo dieting, repetitively dieting, letting yourself gain weight. So you have to lose it and lose it, lose it again. There there are other studies with other mechanisms that show physically it does become, we become more prone to weight regain. But here's what they found out in these these interviews. I already kind of let the cat out of the bag. Weight loss maintenance was compromised by lower self-regulation of eating behavior, which was not, or which was most commonly a consequence of perceived stress and emotional difficulties. So given that caveat that yes, you know, the, that that GLP-1 is potentially a factor, what the subjects were reporting was, I don't think I felt any extra hunger, but, but I wouldn't even trust that because our thoughts about our thoughts are also filtered through a lot of emotion and history and memory and, you know, that kind of thing, just our experience, our, our preconceived biases. So at least they didn't feel massively driven toward hunger, but that little shift could have been a tipping point. I mean, again, I I would not trust them completely being able to, 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 you know, self-interview months after the process. But I did I did like the fact that at least they they couldn't think of instances where they were just ravenous for weeks and weeks and couldn't stop eating. Um, they all did relate it back to behavioral things like yeah I was under a lot of stress I was emotionally eating and so forth, and and that seemed to correlate with some of the things that they 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 took from the study. So final slide here some notes the uh, glucagon like peptide one findings are consistent with bariatric surgery studies. So they said well, we found in that 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 long-term chronic dampening, other studies have actually noted that. So we, we kind of confirmed that, that keeps coming up in literature. The same GLP-1 uh, can be infused. <clears throat> this is a place pharmacologically that, I, I don't know if it's possible to create a safe intervention like this <clears throat> with, with, with a medication, but at least in studies like this, where they can do it, GLP-1 infusion did enhance satiety and reduced energy intake. So at least clinically, in some studies, they have been able to give people this, and and it helps. So I don't know. I think that's that's got some potential, but I, I just did not look and see if it's if it's even on the radar. Uh, functional MRI studies show <coughs> that that GLP one diminishes reward value of food. So going back to the hypothalamus and even probably the neocortex. Uh, You know how you just either feel really full, like, ah, that was a good meal. I can push myself away from the table and I feel satisfied. Uh, It's not even just hormonal. There there are links not studied in this study, but they mentioned that other studies have shown this, that, that when you have a cognitive um, just mechanism to, to, to feel that reward value, then that's, that's part of that trigger to stop. So, so that when you actually get more of that GLP in there, uh, you, you, don't, you, you don't necessarily you know, quantify it in that way. You just automatically, without thinking about it, you just feel fuller. You guys probably know people who, who seem to behave like that, where it's like, they're just, they just get full. Like, oh man, I just ate that hard boiled egg. I am stuffed. And you're sitting there laughing, thinking I could eat you know, six dozen of those and, and still be hungry. Um, the resting metabolic rate, I already told you guys, this did not associate with regain resting metabolic rate came back up just like we've talked about in the past. Adaptive thermogenesis did not correlate with the results whatsoever. And as I mentioned earlier, lean body mass through all of that was less than a pound, which was phenomenal for those of us who care about strength and and lean body mass. Um, so very low body mass. Let's see, I already mentioned that. Uh, one of the things is hunger is to be expected with dieting. That was an interesting thing that they proved. I mentioned this already, but the fact that all those hormones correlate with the fact that they were feeling extra hunger, they were feeling less sated, and yet they still achieved their goal. That again is something that we can say is it has to be very behavioral. We were motivated. Go back to those those five psychological factors. The first one was motivation. They were motivated in some way to do this, so even against all of the biological turmoil happening, all of the feelings of transitional hunger once in a while, uh, all of the social and, and environmental feelings of not being able to eat what they wanted, when they wanted, if they weren't on a diet, they were able to put all of that aside and still lose 30 pounds. So hunger is to be expected. And yet, interestingly, when hunger's not really there, then we regain weight back. So, again, you know, back to just what's happening psychologically. All right, so let's uh, let's open this back up to you guys and uh, see what you think about this. Give me just a second to move things around here. Who's gonna jump in first and ask some good questions?
1: I can, uh... first of all, that's, great, that's great news. Who's who's going? Somebody else going. Man again.
0: Go ahead, Amanda.
2: I, I just had a quick question. You know, you said the average um, basal metabolic rate was between, um, what was it, 1800, 1300, and 1800? Um, I'm curious how one would know their specific basal metabolic rate. Uh,
0: going to a clinic and doing gas spectrom- or spectroscopy testing. Um, There are. I mean, that's pretty much it on a metabolic cart test. Some of that is is definitely algorithm based inside there, but you know those those tend to correlate really well. They've been studied for probably close to a hundred years.
2: So then, when you're when you're trying to calculate like a calorie deficit, and you're trying to take into account like your basal metabolic rate and um, calorie expenditure throughout the day, like you're just basically like ballparking
0: it? Well, it's, you know, to me, because it, it is fluid, you know, like you saw that those women uh, over the course of the dieting phase, their metabolic rates came down and then they came back up right. and so forth. So it's just like you and I do now for our bodies. If I'm, if I'm studying is tracking my calories and macros perfectly, I can find that point of perfect homeostasis. And so, for example, through my 20 years as a bodybuilder dieting for competition, you know, I can tell you that I always needed to start my diet, you know, at a certain level. And as soon as I hit this weight, I always had to drop down to these calorie levels. And I would always end up calorie levels because those were just my genetics. And so just like we figure out how many miles per gallon our car gets in different environments and different different contexts you know, we do the same thing. So, you know, it's, it's certainly not as scientific as doing a metabolic cart test, but it still gets you to the same place.
2: So you're saying it's just kind of like air. you have to do it to figure out what works best for you.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think of the person who's doing it for the very, very, very first time. And I know it feels like just blindfoldedly throwing darts at a dartboard. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I, we all kind of do that anyway. So I've I've started a handful of new clients this week and they have certain dieting histories and I have a certain clinical history and knowledge. And so as I'm asking them, tell me what your daily food intake is like. Well, here I am I, at 165 pounds. I want to weigh 120 pounds. Here's what I typically eat every day. I can add up those calories and I can calculate those macros and even if they're just close to being accurate. And I also know what studies of human metabolism are. I know what that continuum looks like. I mean, 98% of the time I'm, I'm going to be accurate in giving them a correct place to start. Be, not, not because I'm like a carnival barker, just taking a good guess. It's because they're giving me the answer. You know, they're telling me what they've been consuming every day and every week and what's normal for them. So Like I said, if they're being even remotely accurate and honest, like it's, you know, there's the answer right there. Good. uh, Anything to follow up on that, Amanda? Okay. All right, Dan, you are up.
1: First of all, that's good news uh, because uh, knowing that the hunger is not biological, it's psychological, uh, is great. Uh, My question is. What can we do as a coach to set people up uh, post weight loss so that they have that mental fortitude necessary to keep it off? Uh, because it seems like it's all boiling down to that. You, you notice it said perceived stress and perceived hunger. So if that's the case, we've got to get them to change their mind, you know, they're, 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 the, way they, the way they look at uh, hunger and stress. So any suggestions on that end?
0: Yeah, if you can figure that out, you'll be the richest man on the planet.
1: That's exactly what I'm trying to do.
0: <laughs> well, uh, so, so remember that even though you repeated the fact that it's mostly psychological, mm-hmm. it, it does emanate from biological cues. So it is how we perceived it. You, you rightly assess that as well. So imagine, for example, like I know you guys have all felt this like I have. Imagine being in bed. It's been four or five hours since you've eaten. You're, you're in a calorie deficit. You got your goals. You're having a good day. And all of a sudden, you're just hungry. It's 11 o'clock at night. You're laying in bed and you're thinking, I don't even know if I go to sleep with this kind of hunger. Like, I am hungry. I need to go in the kitchen and grab a Pop-Tart. And yet, if you don't, if you don't do that, you go to sleep, you wake up fine, and you're still on track. The next night you feel that hunger, you ignore it pretty soon. You just stop feeling it. I I think both biologically your body adapts. That's why these hormones and peptides and RMR and adaptive thermogenesis like that all is fluid and fluctuates. I think your body just gets used to that. And then um, it is part of how you perceive it in your mind. Like, oh, there's that feeling Wow, I'm I'm losing body fat. I'm going to wake up lighter tomorrow. When I was competing as a pro bodybuilder and I would have that nighttime hunger, I got to the point where I liked it because I knew if I felt hungry going to sleep, I'm making progress. My body is burning body fat right now. I turned that internal interoceptive stimuli from interpreting it as, Oh my God, I'm starving. I'm so hungry. I'm so hungry To This is awesome. Awesome. I'm yeah. losing body fat. And if you yeah. can do that, like that's the game, that is the game.
1: Absolutely. That's exactly what I did. You know, uh, I got a quick uh, anecdote from yesterday. Uh, my wife had the girlfriends coming over last night. So, you know, um, you know, the, 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 uh, uh, the frustrated chef, So I put together one of those big boards with all the meats and the cheeses and uh, the fruit and you you know the deal. Uh, So I was with my sister-in-law and I said, I'm gonna skip lunch because tonight we're gonna do this. You'll you'll be over with the girls and I wanna be able to grab a piece of salami and so on and so forth. And she said to the ladies last night, you wouldn't believe his discipline, he skipped lunch. And I thought, that's probably the easiest thing I did all day, skipping lunch. You know, you just you just decide. Now, for some of us, I think it comes a lot easier, but that's why I'm thinking I want to figure out what Marshall Goldsmith figured out. And one of his clients said to him, you set yourself up for success. Now, he's charging one point two million dollars to coach uh, CEOs and generals only. And the guy said, you set yourself up. And he goes, what do you mean? He said, well, I figured out what you do. In your pre-coaching interview, you decide if your client has the mental fortitude to make the behavioral change necessary that he's hiring you to to
0: coach him into. And then you only take those clients.
1: And he only takes those clients. (laughs) He has almost 100% success. (laughs) And let's face it, his fee was 1.2 million bucks and his intervention was 18 months. And he'd stop it if they succeeded prior to that. So I'm thinking I should do exactly the same thing. I got to figure out what questions to ask to figure out if this person has the mental fortitude to make the change post weight loss so that we don't, I mean, you know, you said that 13 pound weight gain was, was pretty good based on statistics, but I mean, that's not, I don't want that. I want, you know, I want them to get it off and keep it off.
0: Well, I'm just not happy that you just told Charles that somebody's only charging $1.2 1.2 million because I'm charging him 2.5. <laughs> and, you know, as a, as an Air Force Academy graduate, so like I I knew he had the discipline, and so it's just a done deal.
1: It's a done deal, exactly. Uh, exactly.
0: Andrew, yeah, Andrew, you had unmuted there. Were you going to ask a question? Yeah,
1: I just have a quick
2: kind of follow up on that mentality thing, I and mean, this is anecdotal, so take it for what it is, but. Um, I spent a period of time, about a year um, back back in 2018, doing some form of time restricted eating. Usually this uh you know eight or nine hour eating window, and I and I had times where I fasted longer than that. I know that's something you practice as well, Joe. And from a mentality standpoint, I as well as other clients that I've worked with have kind of explained and experienced a form of empowerment because. <clears throat> You know, a lot of people see that hunger and they feel kind of a slave to it. You know, it's like, I'm hungry, I have to be, I don't have a choice. And in most cases in the Western world, people are not malnourished. We have plenty of food otherwise. And realizing that you are not a slave to your hunger and that you have the, the power to, on occasion, decide that you don't have to have that, you know, that feeding. I found it empowering, like I said, I've heard, had other people
0: tell me the exact same thing. Perfectly said. And for those of you guys who don't know, Andrew himself lost, uh, you know, 140, 135 pounds, 145 pounds, something like that, and has kept it off. And I totally agree. It, and that's where those psychological cues come in, like motivation. I think the reason we're, it's so easy for us relatively to lose body fat is because it's almost like we've pre-selected. This is the time I'm starting. This is the time I'm serious. And so we do pretty well. But then eventually, it's not quite as important. We get a little bored. We get a little satisfied and happy with what we did. And now it's not the preeminent you know, focal point of our mindset. And so to be able to relate it back to that sense of empowerment, like this is who I want to be. I earned this. I worked for this. It, it, it was hard when I was doing it, and that's why I embraced it. I wanted to do the hard thing. and now I'm going to keep it. You know, like that's, that's so, so, so important. So it ties into what Laney asked in the chat box, like, like what would I do if I was coaching myself? Like, okay, there you are, Joe. you wanted you know you had a great day going and then you just ruined it with all those extra tortilla chips. First of all, remember that there's no such thing as failing. There's just winning or learning. So last night, I, I stubbed my toe on that tripwire. I was in the middle of a good week with a good day. And here I am telling you guys about it. So it's still on my mind. It still stings a little bit. So I'm, 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 I've learned that lesson. Next time I go into dinner and I've had that perfect three meal, one snack setup, I'm going to say, okay, Joe, you get to try again. This is your opportunity. You can win this time. And so that's what's really important is just to, to take those lessons forward and, and keep applying them. And, you know, research validates that as well. The, the more times you fail, the faster you get to success if you keep trying. So that's a, a real critical critical element is you just, you just got to keep getting up and, and going again. I'll give you one quick little thing. Go ahead, Charles. Go ahead. Go ahead before I do.
3: Oh, yeah. Um... I don't know. Maybe you want to finish because I don't want to derail.
0: No, <laughs> yeah, I, I'll, I'll, I'll be able to tack it. this on to, to what you say.
3: Oh, okay. Yeah. So, um, it's funny how, first of all, that's very inspirational. Uh, Andrew, that's just so awesome. Um, um, it's funny how your, your talks, your presentations are like right in line with what I'm you know, thinking about at that particular time. I don't know if it's just me. Um, maybe it is, but, um, one of the things that I've been, I like to sort of get your thoughts on is in terms of, uh, I like to feel full. That's one of my challenges. I like that, that full belly type feeling. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And uh, prior to, you know, uh, walking into the end of last year, I was making progress. And then as I got stressed, as I started traveling, as my routine uh, changed and, and, and the wife started making all those cookies, it became just more and more difficult. And I've been since this year started been trying to sort of get back on track um and what i've what i've been trying to do is really use what i i would call pre-commitment device so like you getting your all your food together before you actually and have all your meals planned out that's like a pre-commitment but um also i've had i've changed i've been experimenting with changing my routine my whole life i've worked out in the morning for the most part but, I, but because by the end of the day, I'm so stressed by work, and I know I'm at the most vulnerable to go into the kitchen and grab the chips and stuff like that, I've been going to the gym instead, even though my much my performance is much better in, in the morning. Um, so I've been experimenting with that over the last couple of weeks. And then the other thing um, I, I did was um, as soon as I get home, I will have my protein shake, and then I go jump in the shower. Um, and give myself some time because I know I'm going to be hungry right after I work out. Give myself some time to actually just kind of calm down a little bit, and then I go finish up my my, my my dinner. And that seemed to to help give me a little bit of extra time to not uh, go overboard uh, in in the evening. And I just wanted your thoughts on um, in terms of structuring your your life and, and your your routine, I should say. So that you're less vulnerable to being able to um, go off off your diet and things like that.
0: Yeah. If you if you go back to the beginning of their study premise, they talked about the five psychological categories they measured. One of them included environmental triggers and and you laid it out perfectly. And, And I have done the exact same thing in my life. Matter of fact, even to this day, I know just for the sake of having a good workout where I feel like I'm motivated and accomplishing what I want, I have to train midday. I've tried training in the morning. It's a disaster. I, if I try training in the evening, it's a disaster. I'll, I'll either not do it because I have too many things that have piled up or I just, I'm just physically tired. If I don't go into the gym and train by one in the afternoon, it's not going to work. And so I've just had to structure it that way. And that has helped me in turn do what you did, Charles, in that since I eat my lunch a little bit earlier, I still have a lot. You know, my blood sugar levels are fine. I will have a great workout without a pre-workout snack because I like two hours earlier, I've had a really good, solid meal. And so it's allowed me to comfortably take out a a small meal, get a great workout, and then because it, it happens... To be perfectly in the middle of my day, I feel so energized because of the workout, psychologically and biologically, that the rest of my day I feel strong and energetic and mentally focused. It's like, you know, there, there are two or three layers of that, that that everything hinged on just that one schedule change. And it's exactly what you've done with yourself there to, to mitigate a, a little trigger spot for hunger and for maybe, you know, behaviorally going to the kitchen. It's just so absolutely perfectly well said. So, so keep doing that. I, I, will, I will tag on my one point that I was going to say before you started speaking. Um, right before this podcast, I walked by my wife and I noticed she, she had a little like snack on her desk. And I said, oh, hey, if you didn't, I didn't, I don't think you brought any lunch in. I still have some leftover rice and broccoli and ground turkey if you want it in the fridge. And she goes, oh, well you know, we're going out to eat tonight with, with some friends and I'm going to have a burger and fries and a beer. She goes, so I'm skipping lunch. She goes, I'm just going to have a little light snack here. So thanks, but no, thanks. Talk about engineering and planning your day. Like she, you, you said, you like to be full. If you like to be full, you have to. Okay. Also feeling empty. Because my wife's okay, feeling hungry today and a little empty because she knows how good that burger is going to taste tonight. You're familiar with the 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 Stanford marshmallow study, like like my wife would have won that contest if there were fifty thousand kids there. She would have been the last one standing because she she just has that much discipline, Um, and it's all about that pre thought, like you said. Like I can look forward to what I'm going to get. And I'm willing to feel a little discomfort now to get it. That's, it It seems so simple, but with all those biological cues, when they come up, the hunger and so forth, like it, it'll make the strongest person crumble mm-hmm. until we really practice and, and, and get there. All right. Any, uh, any last minute thoughts here? We are just over an hour. So I'm going to, I'm going to wrap us up here unless somebody else has the, the most earth shattering thing to say. Well said there, uh, Andrew, um, stick to the training sessions and adapt and your performance will improve in time. Yeah. Yeah. Those, those workouts where you feel like you're maybe sacrificing some of your functionality in the workout, you know, let your body adjust, start tweaking and fine tuning your nutrition around that. And you'll probably find a new norm that really works for you. Thank you for that. Uh, Andrew. All right, guys, I'll let you go. Oh, go ahead,
4: Kevin. I'll just, maybe I'll take the conclusion here but uh it kind of bring charles point, uh, and dan's point of how to start with this how to teach others start now to understand that tame taming food choices and self-control self regulation whether that's environment or personally you have to develop that now in the pursuit you have to start thinking about it and train for it otherwise you're missing the boats when you are in maintenance uh, whether you want to or not. But when you get to that line, you have to have already thought about it and pre-thought of it. Otherwise you're catching up. And most people unfortunately fail when that's the case, but teach them now, go through them, go through the ropes at right at the moment. And that will help them into maintenance. And that's the whole point through weight loss itself. But that's what I wanted to say.
0: Well, it's spoken from a guy. Those of you guys who don't know this, Kevin Brunacini, part of his doctoral dissertation, uh, was to develop an assessment tool for creating or, or identifying and, and, and learning how to cultivate those behaviors that do create sustainable weight loss. So, so when he speaks on that subject, definitely, definitely listen. Um, but don't forget this. So, so we ended up talking about kind of the psychological ramifications that the study pointed to. But don't forget the one biological thing that they did pull out of the study. That GLP one glucagon factor or, or like uh, peptide one, with repeated dieting does seem to dampen. So there is a point in time if we've ever lost any weight, you know, those of us who have lost weight repetitively for physique sport, those of us who have lost weight for sustainable life change, we could f- see a little pit pitfall in that that postprandial meal. You know, when your stomach gets empty. And all of a sudden, a a person who may have never gone through those kinds of dieting cycles like we have, they may feel sated. They may feel satisfied to a higher level than us. Those of us who have, have lost weight acutely or repetitively, we may not be getting those same cues neurologically. And so we may biologically feel more hunger even after our meals. And so that's when we have to really take this psychological training to heart and say, okay, like, this is my meal. I'm going to stick to it. I'm going to get my serving of chips, Laney, and put the rest in the pantry. And, and I'm, you know, and I'm going to stick to that. I'm going to do what it takes to make sure that I know that that whatever whatever that, that hunger cue is going to be, I can withstand it.